what we're doing this semester in RUF is that we are exploring the topic of relationships, what the Bible has to say about relationships. And tonight, we're going to talk about marriage uh, specifically. And most pastors spend like nine or ten weeks on this topic alone. And we're going to shoot for 30 minutes, um, which is kind of crazy, especially since there's like four people in the room that are married. So why even bother with this topic, honestly? Well, I think it's because um, a lot of our thinking on this issue in particular, we can be very misguided. If if I know anything about students, most of y'all dream about getting married. You want to get married. You feel like if you get married, it will complete you. It will make you whole. Some of you have been, you know, like fantasizing about your, your wedding ceremony. Some of you have been getting bridal magazines since you were 10. And so some of you dream about marriage. And, and, and most of you dream about marriage. And then some of you don't dream about marriage, but actually dread it. Because for you, uh, you know that it's, it's, it's going to, or at least you feel like it's going to ruin your career. It's, it's an obstacle blocking your path to what you want to do. Because since you were a little kid, the number one question that's been asked of you is, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? And for some of you, that question has shaped your whole identity and your whole course of life. If this is what I want to do, this is what I want to be. And marriage is going to be a hindrance to that. So regardless if you dream about marriage or if you dread being married, both of these ways of thinking have some problems with it. Both of these ways of thinking have one fundamental flaw to them, and that they basically come from the starting point of that you think life is about you. You think that marriage exists for you and for your happiness. And what I want to do tonight is look at this passage and try to show you it doesn't. It actually exists for something a lot better. So with that in mind, uh, let's look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 5. If you, if you have a Bible, you can uh, flip it there or you can follow along in your handout there. We're looking at Ephesians chapter 5, kind of the, the famous passage in the Bible about marriage. We'll, get, we'll begin in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's word. Pray that um, uh, it would teach us tonight. And so to that end, let's pray together. Okay, Father, I pray that you would uh, be our teacher. Uh, Father, you know that it is... This is not just something that we do to, to come before you and pray before we look at the Bible, because that's just what you're supposed to do, but we, we are desperate for you to teach us, and so we, we would ask, Holy Spirit, would you come, would you illuminate this passage, would you open up our eyes, would you unclog our ears, and, and give us faith, give us vision, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I'm really excited about all of the movies that have been coming out for the past, I don't know, 10 years or so that they're you know, remaking all these old comic book movies. I, I'm a little concerned that they're getting a little out of control with it, though, because I just saw the previews for the new Spider-Man. You know, they're rebooting the whole Spider-Man series, which ended like a week ago. So I, I don't understand why they're having to reboot it already. But anyway, but you remember the old school Spider-Man, like the old one with Tobey Maguire, Kirsten Dunst. You know, old, like three years ago old. But if you remember the first one, the basic story, the Tobey Maguire character, the Peter Parker character, the, you know, the story is he gets bitten by this genetically mutated spider. And, you know, he starts feeling sick and then he goes home and he kind of passes out. And when he wakes up, he starts realizing that something's very different. And he looks in the mirror. You remember the scene where he's, like, checking out his muscles? He's got all these, like, muscles that popped up overnight. He, he, he can, he can uh, see without having to use his glasses. Remember, he's, he's basically discovering all of these new powers that he has because the spider has bitten him. And uh, basically, the whole point of the, at least the first half of that movie is for him to discover his powers and then figure out how to harness them to fight crime. <laughs> Marriage is the same way. <laughs> not in the sense that you're being bitten by spiders and fighting against crime. You, I mean, you, you will be fighting, but not against crime, hopefully. But um, marriage is the same way in the sense that it's powerful. It's powerful, and a lot of us have not really discovered the power of it. And so what I want to do tonight as we look at this passage is try and just discover together the intrinsic power that marriage has. And so really just for the sake of simplicity, I want to look at this from three different angles. I want to look at the power under marriage, the power of marriage, and then the power for marriage. Okay, so that, so that we're going to look at three things. The power under marriage, the power of marriage, and the power for marriage. Hopefully that will make sense. Here's the first thing we're going to look at. The power under marriage. And what, here's what I basically mean by that. I'm asking the question, what is the undergirding foundation that sustains and holds the relationship up? What is basically, what is the thing that is really uniting these two people together? What's, what's underneath it all? Look at verse uh, 31. It says this, uh, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now this is just an echo out of Genesis chapter 2. This is just a quoting of Genesis 2 where God lays down the framework of what a marriage is, where these two individuals leave their, their family structures, that which is comfortable, their traditional kind of family structures, and they come together and they're united. They leave and then they cleave together. This is all covenantal language. They are making a covenant together. And so, okay, the question is, okay, well then what's a covenant? What do we mean when we say that, that they're making a covenant, a marriage covenant? Well, a lot of people have said that a, a marriage covenant is kind of like a contract. That's kind of a helpful way to, de, to describe it. And so, okay, think about my relationship with DirecTV. I have a contract with DirecTV. I pay them a certain amount of money uh, each month, and in return they provide me with the service of a wonderful assortment of channels. And let's say I were to break that contractual arrangement. Let's say I, weren't, I would violate my end of the deal and I didn't pay. Well, then they would kind of basically cancel the contract and not give me the channels that I want. I wouldn't be able to watch Parks and Rec. I wouldn't be able to watch uh, The Sing-Off. I wouldn't be able to watch The Walking Dead. It would be pretty bad. So that's why I'm, I'm loyal to that agreement. But basically, this is what a lot of people think that marriage is like. It's, it's a contract. We make this agreement, and if... You break the viol. If you violate our agreement, then I can cancel it whenever I want. 
if I find out something about you that I don't like, then I can just sort of end the contract. If I get into this thing and, and I end up not being happy, then I can just sort of get out of it. And that's not what a marriage is. It's not a contract. It is a covenant. A covenant is not a, a, an agreement. It's not loyalty to an agreement. It's loyalty to a person. And so here's basically what, it, what a covenant is in a, in a nutshell. It is making a public, permanent promise to love another individual exclusively. It's making a public, permanent promise to love the other person exclusively. That is what is holding your relationship together. That is what is the, that's the power under a marriage. That's what makes this relationship different from every other relationship is because there is this powerful covenant that you make with each other. If that's true, let me draw out two implications of that before we move on. First implication is this. Your feelings are not what holds your marriage together. Your feelings are not the thing that is actually keeping your relationship together. And I think this is, this is something that modern people don't really grasp. This is something that we don't really get. We like to think that it's our feelings, it's our love, it's our being in love. That's the thing that's kind of keeping our relationship together. And it's not. And here's why. It's because your feelings will change. Believe it or not, there will come a day when you fall out of like with your spouse. When you don't like them, you don't like being around them. Newsflash, it's true. So your feelings is not what is actually binding your relationship together. This is why when a couple stands up in front of everybody, they make vows at their wedding. Promises. They're making vows at their wedding. And what they're doing is that they are making, they are not doing a present, they're not doing a declaration of their present feelings of love. They are making a promise of future actions of love. Enormous difference. They are not making a declaration about their, the present feelings that they have of love, but they are making a promise of future actions of love. Let me try to illustrate it by, by reading you this quote from C.S. Lewis. In his uh, great book, Mere Christianity, he's got this amazing chapter on marriage. It's like three pages long, and it's like unbelievably dense and helpful. But here's what he says. He says, The promise made when I am in love and because I am in love... That promise to be true to the beloved as long as I live commits one to being true even if I cease to be in love. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm making a promise to love this person, and that promise is still binding even if I happen to fall out of love with him. And he goes on. He says, a promise must be about things that I can do, about actions. No one can promise to go on feeling in a certain way. He might as well promise never to have a headache or always to feel hungry. <laughs> and I think he's right. I mean, have you noticed when a couple stands up in front of a church, they're making no reference at all to their feelings. They're not saying, I love you so much. I think you're amazing. Can't wait to have sex with you later. They're not saying any of that. <laughs> what they are saying is that they are making future promises about the way that they will relate to each other in the future. They say, I will love you in plenty and in want. I will love you in joy and in sorrow. I will love you in sickness and in health till death do us part. They're basically saying, um, when we make a covenant with each other, we're setting a date in the future. We're putting it on our calendar and we are saying, I will be there for you then and it does not matter the circumstance. When you grow that disgusting mustache, I will be there for you. 
When you are wearing adult diapers, I will be there for you. When you are sick in the hospital, I will be there for you. When you are irrationally mean to me, I will be there for you. When you hurt me in ways that I didn't know you were capable of, I will be there for you. I will love you then. That's what, mar- that's, that's what couples are doing when they get up in front, and they are promising these things to each other. You know, of course, this is exactly why marriage is fundamentally different from dating. Because what dating does is it says, I like you right now. I may be even in love with you right now, but I won't commit to anything other than just right now. That's the basic difference. Here's the second implication of this. If it's true that that the power under marriage is this covenant thing, the second implication is that marriage is therefore a decision. You choose to make this promise. And this is kind of getting at the question that everybody has of, how do I know who to marry? How will I know who is the one? How will I know? How do I find out who the one is? I'm a big uh, Ben Folds fan. I think I watched the sing-off just because he's one of the judges. But uh, Ben Folds, if you don't know, he is a musician. A couple years ago, he had, he had this album. And on, on that album, one of his songs was called uh, From Above. It's this interesting song uh, about this, this, these two individuals that are soulmates. And yet, ironically, they end up marrying other people. And because they've married other people, something is just sort of off with them. Even though they kind of they brush by each other, there's all these different little stories of how they kind of pass each other. They, they, ne- they never meet in the story. But there's something just kind of off with their current marriages. And let me read you a couple lines. He says this, It's not like they were ever actually unhappy in the lives they lived. He married Martha. She married Tom. Just this vague notion that something was wrong. A naked absence a phantom limb, an itch that can never be scratched. And I think that's how a lot of Christians think about marriage. They think, I've got to find the one. There's this person out there somewhere that I'm mystically connected to. I need to find who they are. And there's this fear that I might marry someone that's not that person. And because we believe this, because we buy into this, Christians have adopted, in my opinion, really bizarre and unhelpful ways of identifying who it is that you're supposed to marry. And so we come up with these phrases, we come up with these measuring sticks of the way that you'll find out, the way that you will know that per- who you're supposed to marry, you'll just know. You'll just know. There will be this kind of mystical certainty that you will experience and you will just know. And, and honestly, I think all of that's really unhelpful and misguided. Because it's this, it's this thought that someone else is out there who's my mystical soulmate, which has really no grounds in, in the Bible, in my opinion. The, the question that I think that you should be asking is this. Am I willing to stand up in front of God and in front of my family, in front of these people, and in front of a minister, and to make a promise that everybody's going to hold me accountable to, this promise that I will love this person for the rest of my life regardless of any condition? That's the question you should be asking, not the question of, is this person the one? Do you actually know um, how you can know who the one is? It's right after you say, I do. That's when you'll know that they're the one. I wasn't bound to this person before. Now I am. They're the one. It's really that simple. So how do you go about making that decision? How do you make that decision? Well, we're going to revisit this here in a, here in a couple minutes, but I think the, the decision requires less amount of time than you think it does. 
A lot of people in college think, I need to date this person for two, three, four years before I can really know whether or not I want to marry them. And uh, I, I think it's a lot less than that. Look, when, when, when people get out of college and they become adults, you find this really weird thing happening. They, uh, when they're 25, 26, 27 years old, they only start dating for like three or four months and then they're like married within the year. Why is that? I mean, have you noticed that? When people get out of college, they don't date for five, six, seven years like we do in college. Why is that? It's because it doesn't take that long to figure out, does this person love Jesus and can we be friends? I mean, I didn't have to date Catherine for three or four years to figure out whether or not she loved Jesus and we would be good friends. I'm not saying if you're dating somebody right now, get engaged next week. (laughs) But what I am saying is that the amount of time and the amount of data that you think is required for figuring out whether or not you could be married to this person, it's just a lot less than you think. It's a lot less. So that's the power under marriage, that it is supported and it's undergirded by this covenant, by this public, permanent promise that we make. Okay, let's look at the second thing. And I spent more time on that than I will the the second two points just to set your expectations. Here's the second point. What is the power of marriage? In other words, if I get into this thing that supposedly has all this power, what's it going to do to me? What, What is the power of this thing as it affects me? Okay, well, look at verse 25. I'll read it. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God has set up marriage in this way, that when you enter into it, it actually begins to change you. It begins to transform you one way or the other. I mean, look at all the language that is used of the way that marriage is designed. It's, it's, it's intended for you to become holy and cleansed and washed and blameless. I mean, God has set up marriage so that when you enter into it, you begin to, your, the filth of your sin and your selfishness begins to be confronted and worked on. And here's what this means. That marriage is not primarily about your happiness, but about your holiness. Marriage is not primarily about your happiness, but about your holiness. And here's how this works. Okay, you know when you go on a first date with someone, which by the way, time out. Guys, are you asking girls out on dates? You should be. I hear laughs of sarcasm. Guys, ask girls out on first date so you can know what I'm talking about. Okay, time in. When you go on a first date with someone, I mean, you know what this is like. I mean, you dress up in your kind of nicest outfit. You're kind of on your best behavior. You're really nice and conversational. You're open up the door for each other. And... You know, you're basically lying is what you're doing. I mean, that's great and all, but you're basically lying. You're basically pretending to be somebody who's a lot nicer and a lot cooler and a lot sweeter than you really are in real life. But as you begin to date more and more and more, you become a little bit more relaxed. You become more and more and more of yourself, right? And it's probably when you start getting more and more fights along the way. But what eventually happens, and I don't think that you're ever fully yourself around anybody. At some level, there's always walls that are up. You're always at some level restraining your instincts that you have to want to be selfish and want to kind of fight for your position. 
But when you get married, at some point, all the walls just kind of eventually come down, and you're fully yourself, and you no longer restrain the instincts. And man, that's <laughs> when two people do that, that's when like the nuclear war happens. Uh, it was, this was maybe last summer. Catherine and I were at home on the couch just trying to find something to watch on the television, and we came across uh, Jerry Springer's new game show. Have you seen this? It's called Baggage. Have you seen you know what I'm talking about? It's on the Game Show Network channel. And basically it's this, it's this dating, blind date dating show kind of premise where there's a, a guy contestant and there's three uh, females and they basically are, are showcasing, they're letting out all of their baggage, all of this painfully true stuff about them that... Uh, that he has to decide whether or not he wants to take them out on a first date. So they're like letting all this junk out. Like one of them saying, uh, I live with 18 cats. And another one says, you know, I had an affair with my stepdad. This is Jerry Springer, so keep in mind. Um, another one says, um, I'm 35 and I live with my parents and I have no intention of ever leaving. And much worse stuff. I'm not... Don't watch the show. But they say much worse stuff. And the guy basically has to decide, do I want to take on their baggage and take this person on a first date or not? And so here's what the website says. It says, contestants reveal the hidden flaws that are normally kept under wraps in order to impress on the first date. So they let it all out there instead of do the whole masquerade pretend thing. And part of me thinks that's kind of a good idea. Like, we should probably do that. Just let it all out there. Of course... No one would ever date or get married if we did that, so bad idea. But here's my point. My point is this. Here is how this works in marriage. All of the junk, all of the sin, all of the mess, all of your baggage that you previously could hide now gets showcased. All the stuff that you suppressed and didn't want it to come out, it's now all out in the open, and you have to deal with it. Somebody's holding a mirror up to your face saying, this is how ugly your sin is. And you're doing the same thing to them. And when it's brought out in the open, you have to deal with it. It's not like, it's not like you can avoid it. It's because you're, you're bound together in like this cage match, and you have to deal with it. You know, just, just an example from uh, my own marriage. There, there have been countless times where Catherine looks at me and says, Matt, I don't understand why you are so willing to meet everybody else's needs except mine. In other words, we'll be like at church or something, and she has to leave. She's told me that she's got to leave pretty quickly. But I can't extract myself because I'm saying hi to everybody. I want to talk to everybody. And she's like, Matt, why is it so easy for you to say no to me and so impossible for you to say no to everyone else? And what she has done is she's pulled out my junk, and now, now here it is. And what she's done is she's, is she's put her finger on my idol, and, she, and she's exposed, Matt, you love the approval of other people more than anything, and you're willing to do anything in order to get it. Now, normally I would have two options at that point. I could deal with what she's saying, or I could deny it. And if we weren't married, it would be so much easier for me to just deny it, or to break up with her, or for me to justify it and say, you're just being too sensitive, this is, what, this is just who I am, you got you. this is who you have to deal with. I could make excuses, I could justify it, I could break up with her, but here we are in marriage, and now my sin, my idolatry is affecting her, and it's hurting her. And now I have to deal with it. And dealing with it does not make me happy. Because you know what that requires? That requires counseling now. That requires pastors digging around in my life 
and praying for me and asking me really hard things. That involves this constant struggle where I constantly mess up and have to constantly ask for her repentance, for, for her forgiveness, over and over and over. My marriage at times does not make me happy. But my point is, I believe that God is using it to make me more holy. Because what is happening is I'm seeing the depth of my sin in a much deeper way than I ever thought. But at the same time, I'm realizing that Jesus is a much bigger Savior than I really ever thought he was to begin with. And so if this is true, how does this affect y'all when you aren't married? Well, I think this affects you, again, in in what you look for in a potential spouse. So let's go back to that and, and, and revisit that. What do you look for when you're trying to figure out who you want to marry? Well, think about this. Think about how much you have changed over the past 10 years. Think 10 years ago. Some of you, you were 8 years old 10 years ago. You've changed a lot in the past 10 years, I hope. (laughs) Think about the next 10 years of your life. You are going to change just that much. You are going to change. You are constantly changing. And so when you look for someone to marry, it has to be for a stronger reason than for the type of music they like because that will change. It has to be for a stronger reason than for what they enjoy doing for fun because that will change. It has to be for a stronger reason than even their physical looks because believe it or not, that will change. Your youthful beauty that you think will always be around, it won't. It will fade. Your hair will fall out of your head and it will start growing on your back and in your ears. (laughs) Stuff will start sagging, believe it or not. Weight will show up in random weird places. I'm telling you, it has to be for a stronger reason than these things. So what's the reason? What do you look for? Well, I think you're looking for the raw material. You are looking for the raw material. Do they love Jesus? And are they being shaped and are they teachable to the gospel? And I think that that's about it. And, you know, are you compatible? Do you like each other? But there has to be a trajectory of holiness in them that you can kind of identify. Are they becoming more humble? Are they becoming more confident in Jesus? Are they becoming more kind? Are they growing to hate their sin more? And are they growing to love Jesus more? Do you see this trajectory of holiness in them where they're shapeable, they're malleable, they're, they're, they're pliable to God's influence in their life? I think that that's kind of what you have to deal with. And, and I'm not suggesting that you have to look for someone who's perfect, who's not struggling. Because in, in a real way, in a counterintuitive way, if they are growing closer to Jesus, they're actually going to look and feel a lot messier. Why is that? It's because they're not hiding their sin, but they're actually confessing it and dealing with it and not suppressing it. They know how messy and how needy they are. So that's what I think you kind of have to look, more, look for in them. But what do you have to look for in yourself? You have to ask yourself the question, do I want to be involved in laying down my life to make them beautiful? Do I want to be a part of this thing that God's doing in them to make them more beautiful? Because I think what happens in dating, the the thing gets reversed. In in dating, we want it the other way. It's like we're asking people to submit their resume to us, and and then we'll determine whether or not they'll be a good addition to our life, if they'll complete us, if they'll make us beautiful. And so dating, in, in many ways, that app kind of resembles going to Walmart, 
where you're just trying to pick out the fruit. Is this fruit good? Is this fruit nice? Or is this, uh, is this person a nice accessory to my life? But that's kind of what uh, dating has become is that we enter into this dating relationship and we're looking for somebody to complete us, somebody to make us great, somebody to make us beautiful. And the question is rather, are you willing to make someone else beautiful? That's the power of marriage. We looked at the power under marriage, which is this covenant. We looked at the power of marriage, which is this sort of transformational sanctification on speed sort of thing. But here's the last thing. Where do you get the power for marriage? Because if you think about this, honestly, this sounds crazy. Where you are going to permanently glue yourself to another sinful human being that you know will hurt you. And you are saying, I promise to love you regardless of any condition. Where do you get the motivation? Where do you get the ability? Where do you get the power for this? Well, let's look at this passage again. Look at verse 32. It says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, here's what this is saying. Paul, who is writing this, says, If you want to understand marriage, you have to look at Jesus. Marriage is basically just this reenactment of the way that Jesus loves his church, the bride, the way that he loves you. That's what marriage is. Marriage will make no sense to you unless you look at Jesus first. And so, okay, if that's the way that this is, let's look at these first two points and try to apply them to Jesus. How does a covenant and how does cleansing relate to Jesus in the way that he relates to us? Okay, what about the covenant thing? Well, Jesus is the one that makes covenant promises to his people. He has bound himself to you apart from conditions. And so this means if you are somebody that's responded to him by faith, this is what this means for you. He is committed to you, not just when you are doing great spiritually, but when you are failing spiritually. He is committed to you. He does not only love you when you're praying and when you're reading your Bible, but he loves you when you're having sex with your boyfriend. He loves you when somebody is holding your hair and you're hugging a toilet and puking because you got hammered. He loves you then. He does not distance himself from you then if you are his because his love is covenantal. It is not conditional. That is the reality. And if you, if you begin to get that into your heart and into your head, what will that do to you? What will that do? Well, I think that it will actually free you up to love other people the same way. Where you will be gracious and forgiving when other people sin against you because he was gracious and forgiving of you when you sinned against him. You will be patient with other people when they are messy because he has been patient with you while you are messy. I mean, once you actually begin to see this, that the security of his commitment to you, it actually liberates you to love and care for somebody else other than you. That's what his covenantal commitment to you does in you. But it's not just the way that he covenants himself to you, but also the way that he cleanses you. And so what does the second thing mean? How does Jesus apply to that? Well, very simply, Jesus has lived his life and he's laid down his life in order to make his bride beautiful. And so if you are somebody that has responded to him by faith, this means that he is at work in you right now, right this second, making you beautiful. And what I mean by that is that he is making you more charitable and more humble and more kind 
and more concerned for mistreated people and more confident and more humble. This is what he is doing in you. He's actually making, he's beginning this slow process that will take place over your whole life, making you more beautiful. He does not love you because you are lovable. He loves you in order to make you lovable. That is the reality. And so let me just end with this. I, um, I have loved, as my friends have kind of gotten engaged, and we've been able to go to some of their weddings, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to doing some of the weddings of, of some of the students that are here um, that have been involved with RUF. Uh, but, but a memory that stands out to me was um, my best friend got married a number of years ago now, and I was the best man in his wedding, which in my opinion is kind of like the best position for the whole marriage ceremony thing because you basically get to experience the whole wedding from his vantage point because you're right next to him but you don't have any of the pressure and nobody's looking at you so it's like it's amazing so there we are uh, at at my friend's wedding and you know they they crank up the organ bum 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 everybody stands up and everybody you know turns to the back and there are the doors and they bust open and literally, boom! <laughs> and there is, you know, his stunningly beautiful bride beaming on her daddy's arm. And because, because of my vantage point, everybody's focused on her. But because of where I was standing, I could see my friend. And his, his face had turned blood red. Tears were, were pouring down his cheeks. He had his hands... He had his hands cupped, you know, he was cupping his face with his hands, uh, and his knees had kind of buckled. <laughs> he was so, he was so overwhelmed with the beauty of his bride. He was so overwhelmed. Now, in the biblical imagery of this story, the biblical imagery of marriage is that <coughs> we, his church, is the bride. We are the bride that Jesus, the groom, has laid his life down for in order to remove our filth and to adorn us with beauty and with righteousness. And so let me ask you a question. If you are someone that considers yourself a Christian, let me ask you a question. If you could picture the look on Jesus' face when he thinks about you right now, what would it be? If you, are, if you identify yourself as a Christian and you think about when he looks at you and he sees the week that you've had, he sees what you did over fall break, he sees the kind of semester that you've had, what do you think his expression looks like? If you're anything like me, you picture him uh, with folded arms and this look of kind of a frustrated disappointment, maybe a foot tapping, And him saying something like, look, this is everything that I've done for you, and you can't get it together? But what if the expression on his face is what it really is? And that when he thinks about his people, when he thinks about his church, his bride, his face is red. And he has tears streaming down his eyes, and his knees are buckling, and he's cupping his face in his hands. What if that was the way that he was actually looking at you right now? Because it is. If you are someone who has responded to him by faith, that is the way that he looks at you right this moment. Now the question is, how would you live differently if you really believe that that was true? If you could burn that image into your head and into your heart, that is not just where you get the power for marriage. I mean, that's the power where you live all of life differently. And so the question really is, is that how you see him? Is that how you see him? 
And are you one who, have, who has responded to his grace by faith? That's the invitation for you tonight. Would you pray? Lord Jesus, uh, you love your bride, your, your church, enough to lay down your life to make her beautiful, to make us beautiful. Would you give us the eyes of faith to see and to believe your delight in us, your joy over us, your, uh, your love for us. Help us to apprehend uh, your gracious commitment to sinners like us. It's hard for us to believe. It's staggering. It's almost too good to be true. But I pray, would you give us the eyes of faith to see it and to believe it? Would Jesus become more believable and more beautiful to us, we would ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.